This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for coming back if you've listened before and if you're new. I hope you find a voice here of moderation, a voice of reform, a voice of the future, a voice that gives you hope, a patriot, an American Muslim that believes that we need to own the problem, that we are need to be at the head of the spear, and that ultimately it is up to American Muslims to come together to lead the reforms necessary to stop the precursors that radicalize our community. A lot going on, and... Uh, what can we talk about this week? Well, we touched a little bit about the controversy going on with Qatar. And I can't tell you the number of people that have reached out to me on social media at my Twitter handle, Dr. Dr. Zudi, Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, and also on Facebook, and are trying to get a handle to understand what exactly is going on with that country. What's different now from ever before? The bottom line is I look at it sort of like the, well, the Sunni Islamist Mafia Rubik's Cube. If you look at all the different pieces that move back and forth, it doesn't make that much sense. But yet, you put it together and you organize it, they're feeding from the same central core. The core Sunni Islamism. And the flying ointment is Shia Islamism of the Khomeinis and Hezbollah. But that's another cube. That's not in their cube. But it's the same mechanics, same physics, same movements along the axis of the cube. But the movement... So let's... Why am I calling it a Rubik's Cube? Well, let's look at this for a second. You've got the Saudis. One of the rich, if not the richest country in the Middle East with all of its petrol petrodollars the saudis are home to wahhabism wahhabi islam a, a salafi salaf meaning fundamentalist like the friends of the prophet wahhabism being a more militant draconian form of that if if possible but yes it is and in that form they seek a more orthodox if you will but also fundamentalist and militant interpretation that's very black and white, very literalist. And that's the 
intellectuals, the intelligentsia that controls the justice, the judiciary in Saudi Arabia, and also the schools. And they left the military and the government to be controlled by the House of Saud. Now, some would say, oh, the House of Saud say, well, we can't do anything about that. But the bottom line is, is the House of Saud believes in Wahhabism because that's the only translation of the Quran they allow is the Muhammad Khan translation, which has many of those translations that unfortunately have saturated the market of Muslim ideas around the planet. That very, and, and you know, I talk to you all the time about reform, right? Well, sadly, and to my chagrin, one of the most recent reformers in Islamic history in the mid-19th century was Muhammad ibn Wahhab. So Wahhabi reform was not reform in progress or progressive reform, but rather regressive. Regressive and, and draconian reforms that shifted the interpretation towards a very, very austere black and white militant version of Islamism or political Islam. Let's get back to our Rubik's Cube. The global Rubik's Cube of political Islam or theocratic Islam starts with Saudi Arabia shipping its ideas to the West. And who were the vesicles or the vehicles, I should say, recipients of this radical theological interpretations? Well, Muslim Brotherhood groups, the Islamist groups. They weren't Wahhabi per se, but they were indoctrinated through an evangelism of Wahhabi Islam, small e, evangelism of Wahhabi Islam globally. Just like when the Germans were complaining about wanting help with the refugee crisis. The Saudis didn't say, oh, we will take them in. Please, brother, bring them, send them, send them to our state. We will help. No, they don't want any of the Syrians. What was their response? Oh, we will help build 100 mosques in Germany, 100 mosques. Yes, that's their answer, is spreading their Wahhabi ideas. And and the primary vehicles for those ideas for them have been the viral Islamist movements of the Muslim Brotherhood. So you have a more fundamentalist black and white ideology that feeds into an Islamist grassroots laity ideology, but both feed from a sense that Sharia should dominate society, Political platforms are based in Islamic State identity, so they're both Islamist, per se, but one is viral grassroots political movements that spread much more quickly than the clerical, top-down, corporate mafia Islamism of Wahhabism. So the Rubik's Cube, it connects from Wahhabism with the ideology that spreads virally through its side of the cube, into the West. And then you have Qatar, which is not driven by Wahhabism, but El Thani family has found itself living in synchronicity with Islamism of the Muslim Brotherhood. It brought in Imam Yusuf Qardawi into its country in 1961 as he escaped, fleed Egypt when Jamal Abdel Nasser was buckling down on the Muslim Brotherhood, he flees and has since, in the last 60 years, controlled the intellectual leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood. And through that leadership, now, he doesn't report to claim any of that, but he's thought to be one of the spiritual mentors of most of the radicals of the Muslim Brotherhood. 
And the Qatari family has thus spread its ideas, not only through its media arms of Al Jazeera, but through Hamas and its direct funding, has also opened channels in Iran, giving up to a billion dollars to Iranians, to Al-Qaeda and others. Now, they will claim it was to free their own, to get some of their royal family back, but the question remains, why is it that they're so closely endeared to militant Islamist terror groups like Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and then Shia Islamists like the Khomeinists and others? Because the Al-Thani family, different from the elitism and the suffocated, very, very tight elitism of the Saudis, the Al-Thani view the Islamism as, a, as an intoxicant that should spread globally. The Saudis do too, but they view it as something they want to continue to control. They will feed it to the Brotherhood ideas in the West. But the difference between Qatar and Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia acknowledges that this radical ideology that they feed locally in the Middle East and North Africa and MENA and in the Arab Peninsula especially is not anything they want to maintain so locally. Wahhabism in its strict interpretation is the Sunni theology of Saudi Arabia maintaining its school of thought of Maliki school of thought and then in Qatar they actually have an open public proud association with the Muslim Brotherhood it's not simply to the West but they maintain that relationship domestically regionally with the Brotherhood and now they're even doubling down on that relationship in which they're saying that they're proud of it Hamas they now Al Jazeera which should rename itself the Qatari Information Agency it's clearly not anymore about freedom in Al Jazeera or the Gulf, but rather about Qatar television or Qatari information agency, no different than Russian television. So they now have not apologized. They haven't said, oh, we didn't mean to fund Hamas and Al-Qaeda and give billions to Iran. They're doubling down. They're saying this is their way they operate. So they fuel the grassroots ideologies. The Saudis counter them domestically. They now isolate Qatar, while the Saudis had been feeding those ideas regionally, and not regionally, locally, but globally into the West, into Europe and America. They were feeding the Brotherhood, the Brotherhood legacy groups, like their relationship with CARE, their relationship with the Muslim Council of Britain, their relationship with many mosques. And yet the UAE, the UAE has designated most of these groups which they know to be offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood. They designate them as terror groups. And thus that shows that now you have a balkanization in the Middle East in which the UAE, the Wahhabi sympathetic states of Saudi Arabia have now separated and are isolated the Brotherhood sympathetic states of Kuwait, Qatar especially right now, and Turkey. When we come back, let's see, I want to talk to you a little about what happened in the past. What was this crisis with Qatar? Cliff May laid it out in an op-ed in the Washington Times, and I want to walk you through some of what I think he revealed showed the timing that we can't, we can't help
but pay attention to. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. We were talking in the first segment about putting the pieces of this Islamist, confusing Sunni Rubik's Cube that includes this back and forth triangulation, if you will, where the Saudis fund the Brotherhood in the West, but yet they claim to be the staunchest enemies and destroyers of the Brotherhood in the Middle East. And then you have a couple other Gulf states, especially the Emirates, that have also declared war on the Brotherhood and will do everything to stop them. And have actually, the UAE a couple of years ago came out with a list, a comprehensive list of Brotherhood organizations, including the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which protested profusely to the Obama administration, begging Secretary Kerry and others, oh, please, please, brother, take us off. Take us off the terror list of the UAE. They are a authoritarian regime. They don't know how to label brotherhood groups. What are we? are an American group. We are not Islamists. Didn't work. Kerry actually listened to them, even though they're not really, they're supposed to be persona non grata still, according to the FBI, because they would not condemn Hamas. And when they tried to, they did so in a very passive-aggressive way, which did not suffice. Those are letters written from the Assistant Director of the FBI to Senator Kyle in 2008 that documented why they are felt to be persona non grata, why they were unindicted co-conspirators in the Holy Land Foundation trial. But this is important. CARE is but one of hundreds of Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in the West, including the Muslim Council of Britain and London, and so many other mosque-affiliated organizations that were funded by the Saudis, but linked more directly to the Qataris and their close affinity and relationship with Hamas and Muslim Brotherhood known organizations in the Middle East. So, Cliff May in his piece this week in Washington mm-hmm. Times laid out how the high-profile ambassador Yusuf al who's well-known as one of the most high-flying ambassadors, uh, throwing around millions here and there to various donations and charities, including heart balls and other types of uh, healthcare-related and charity organizations that bring him prominence with anchors and other things in various media that has been widely reported. So he's found himself to have a, a significant affinity for some of the power circles in Washington. Perhaps the UAE is one of the more moderate countries 
in the Middle East. Now, it's not a bastion of democracy. Have they worked for true reform against Islamism? Uh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> They're not doing any of that. What we are doing at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy or the Muslim Reform Movement is not bleeding out of the civil society organizations of the United Arab Emirates. But when it comes to our complicated Rubik's Cube, the UAE has been clearly anti-Islamist as far as the Brotherhood viral version of Islamism, while Qatar has been ground zero for the global information operation of the spread of Islamism through using its billions into Hamas, Al-Qaeda even, peri-Al-Qaeda groups, Iran and other organizations. Why would it have had back channels for the release of Gitmo prisoners that went to Qatar and then it worked closely with the Taliban? Why does Qatar have such close contacts with one of the most heinous Islamist organizations in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, the Taliban? So the Al-Thani family, and I think what's different is if you talk to the Saudi royals, they're more about kleptocracy, maintaining ownership, maintaining their supposed God-given mandate to control the mosque, the Grand Mosque of Mecca. But when it comes to the Al-Thanis, they are probably ideologically, deeply politically, theopolitically Islamist. So they feel that the future of Islam is going to be the rebuilding of an Islamist caliphate. And that's why they're so close to Turkey. Turkey's also had a close relationship with Qatar. And if you look, the last piece of the Sunni Rubik's Cube has been what has radicalized, what has radicalized the Syrian rebellion that I believe started in Dar'a and Hama and Homs as a more moderate secular revolution. No, what has radicalized them has been primarily Qatar and Turkey. And yes, initially Saudi Arabia, but I think in the past 6 to 12 months, Saudi Arabia has backed away from some of the radical groups, Peri Al-Qaeda, Jubat al-Nusra, and other militant Sunni Islamist groups that they were radicalizing in Syria. And again, this is not to give the Saudis a pass. That country of 30 million people, billions spread across the planet, where, as Jim Woolsey, former head of the CIA, said they've spent over $100 billion in an information operation in the last 50 years which has been primarily responsible for radicalization of Muslims across the planet, make no doubt their hands are just as dirty and they are just as much frenemies as Qatar and other countries. But step by step, and I think the first step, Qatar is a much bigger, I think, a, a primary, not bigger, but a primary problem because of its continual money flow. And as... As Cliff May points out, Dave Weinberg at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, a senior fellow there, has been studying Qatari finance for some time. And, and Cliff reminds us, why is it that more non-profits or NGOs or think tanks in America have not been studying the, the Qatari financial spread of radical Islam? What is going on with that? Well, the New York Times reported on it three or four years ago. If you look at foreign money financing, foreign money financing of think tanks, Qatar ranks right up there. 
Look at the Brookings Qatar Pact. What is Shadi Hamid, the primary vehicle for normalizing political Islam? His book, Islamic Exceptionalism, is the tip of the iceberg for evangelizing political Islamism as a normative ideology rather than the supremacist ideology of what it really is globally of spreading and legitimizing a fascistic type of caliphism, caliphate ideology. Qatar has all of its money in that ideology. The normalization of caliphism, Islamism in a grassroots viral operation with the Brotherhood and then peripherally with Turkey and Iran and the Taliban. So I think if you're looking at stages of containment of global Islamism, you start with Qatar. You shore up the Sunni strength versus the Iranian threat and stabilize the Middle East, which is what President Trump did. But now the bigger question is going to be, do we have the stomach to move it to the next stage? Do we have the strategy to say, you know what, we are no longer going to care. And, and listen, one of the interesting things manifesting this last few weeks was what's going to happen with our largest base in the Middle East is in Qatar. 15,000 troops, however many is there. What's going to happen to them? And you had Congressman Royce chair of the committee on foreign relations in the House said, well, we might have to move it. Which I think is very reassuring to hear that. It is about time we no longer be held hostage to the ideologies of these foreign governments because of strategic geopositioning. Yes, it's important in some ways, but we can move it and find somewhere else. We are the United States of America. We should not be held hostage to little countries like Qatar that make their money out of natural gas or petrol. We are far more productive and creative than that. And if we want to respect them, then we should demand of them universal human rights and demand of them improvement instead of fossilizing their ideologies in the 12th and 13th century with no progress. It's interesting that Cliff lays out in his piece that they had a significant conference a few weeks ago where FDD brought in other organizations and the Ambassador Otaiba had interacted by email before and after and they laid out the threat of Qatar and that Qatar had now been in a fork in the road in which it had to be exposed for the ideological financing of Islamism across the planet. And all of a sudden you found a few days later these emails were released and abruptly Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain and Egypt cut diplomatic relations with Qatar and issued an ultimatum to the emir, prove you're with us and not against us, quote-unquote. Now Tillerson, Secretary of State, has attempted to calm those waters as Cliff lays out. President Trump didn't care much about diplomacy and has been pushing and needling Qatar on Twitter. And the interesting thing is, where did the release of these emails come from? Al Jazeera touted it as back-channel operations between the UAE and a think tank. Cliff, understandably, sarcastically says, Really? Back-channel for emails? 
the think tank that's openly speaking to an ambassador. So bottom line is, is that the timing between the conference and then all of a sudden the trigger for the isolation of Qatar seemed to happen as Qatar wanted to double down on its position. And now, surprise, surprise, Qatar has hired John Ashcroft to represent it for $2.5 million on a 90-day contract as exposed in a Justice Department filing of the Foreign Agent Registration Act, a FARA registration that the Ashcroft Group has now registered for. So when you say that this is just a left problem, no. The foreign establishment of Islamism that solidifies its position to supposedly speak for the Muslim community comes from both sides of the aisle. And I think history will show that Attorney General Ashcroft was a bottom-dwelling, swamp-dwelling individual that I don't care what you think about the isolation of Qatar right now. Yes, they do some good things. Yes, we are uh, also trying to stop them from doing bad things. But taking $2.5 million from these Islamists that are working with their enemies that are feeding a network that might as well be called jihadi television, I find to be corrupt, corrupt and no different than taking it from any communist media agency during the Cold War. Now, is Ashcroft a patriot? Maybe he is. Maybe he's just too ignorant to know otherwise. Probably. I don't think he knew much about foreign policy, to tell you the truth. But bottom line is, is he needs a quick education. He certainly has the resources at his disposal to have understood that before he inked the retainer of $2.5 million. There's a lot more to happen. We're going to keep our eye on Qatar. When I come back, I want to talk to you about Twitter frequency. Which countries do you think are the highest in ISIS adherence and ISIS sympathetic Twitter activity? We're going to walk through that when we come right back. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about Qatar. Now, let's look into the more interactive cultural social media phenomena that creates radicalization. Step away from some of the geo-national politics and let's just talk about pure internet, social media, communication radicalization. Which countries, we talked about, I asked you this before the break, which countries do you think have the highest Twitter activity? 
for ISIS, ISIS supporters tweeting from. Number one, by far, 40% more than any other country after that, is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. So this corporate Wahhabi organization that's so anti-brotherhood and so anti-terror is the global number one factory of the ideas that are radicalizing Muslims. The number one global factory of the ideas that are radicalizing Muslims and the social activity of the social media. And this is parallel. This graphic I just saw a few weeks ago produced by British media in The Independent and Statista. Sample size 20,000, also sourced from Brookings Institute. And the Saudis who claim to be so anti-Islamist, yet the primary, most vicious byproduct of Muslim Brotherhood ideology is ISIS. So how could they be so anti-Brotherhood and talk a good talk with the Americans about how to defeat ISIS? And then in their populations, they have the, the largest fervor. And using proportion... 866 in Saudi Arabia where the next country is where ISIS is in Syria. It's 507. So, well, internet access, social media access is probably limited significantly in Syria due to the revolution, due to horrific conditions. So, I, I don't think that's a surprise, even though that's where ISIS operations are based. And then third is Iraq at 453. So let me bring this back to you. Saudi Arabia, 866. Syria, 507. Iraq, 453. In the scale of things. So, Saudi Arabia is sitting, and this is consistent with I, when I went to Saudi Arabia, they would tell us, oh, what would happen if the royal family left? The Wahhabis would take control. This is why we have to control their speech. This is why we have to whip them and put them in jail. Because they are twisting Islam, and if we let them loose, if we left tomorrow, the country would be won by Wahhabis. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that the government has created by distributing the ideas, by thinking that somehow you could moderate Wahhabism by whiting out the kill the Jews line, or by whiting out the hadith that they say a woman has a brain the size of a mule. This, this horrific misogyny that the Saudis talk about. They think they can change by whiting out when in fact their core ideology is Islamist fascism. So, this is why I said building a counter-terrorist center in Riyadh is like building a counter-cocaine center in Colombia. These folks need deep, deep reforms. And it might get worse, just like in Iran. You had the Khomeinis running Iran now for over 30 years. Upwards of 38 years now. And for years they were being radicalized by 
an underground network of Islamists, Shia Islamists under the Shah, while Khomeini sat in Paris and was radicalizing them from his hotel room in Paris with tapes in the thousands and thousands and millions at the time. But this is an eventuality that the Saudis have wanted. It legitimizes authoritarian control. It legitimizes suppression of free speech. It legitimizes the need for men with beards to declare what is and what is not Islam. So if you think you can reform Islam in that climate, you're ignorant. You're a fool. The government claims to be a victim of the same ideology that, that it distributes, and if it were to actual spew out liberal ideas, it would cease to exist because it maintains its military control by the necessity of it due to the militancy of its own people. And the democratization, the liberalization, and the detribalization of Saudi Arabia would thus require a disruption in society that would destabilize that government. And the Saudis are not on firm footing. They've got 30 million people in the 25 to 30 million people in their country who have a large Shiite tradition, however many percent, 10%, if not more, especially on the east side that are considered apostates according to the Saudi government, and yet they're able to build a few Husseiniyas and other areas of prayer. But are they able to learn their tradition? Are they able to worship freely? Not exactly. If a moderate Sunni Muslim cannot even bring in a Quranic interpretation, what would ever happen to the Jafari and other Shia interpretations? But the Saudis are not going to reform. They're not going to moderate. They do things in which they promise a 2030 plan and otherwise, and it's just not going to happen. And this is why it is so important. And please, if you listen to one thing, understand, this is why it is so important that we do this work of reform in the West. We can do things. We can focus on areas of reform and push criticism and push anti-tribalism and push new forms of 21st century thought that would completely restructure what is felt to be Islamic law and start primarily with the separation of mosque and state and end the jihad by ending the whole existence of the Islamic state. The Saudis would never allow that to happen because their oxygen is the belief that the Islamic state is the center of their family's control of the grand mosque, that they are the custodians of the holy mosque. And that's based on the need for an Islamic state based in Sharia with their draconian interpretation and translation of Quran. And thankfully I was blessed to have a father that translated the Quran, grandparents and mother that taught me modern interpretations, alternative interpretations. There are ways to moderate that interpretation. But again, it's never going to come from Saudi Arabia with that government in place and with their judiciary and jurists in place that have simple interpretations that are based out of Ibn Taymiyyah, based out of 
Al-Ghazali and others that while might have passages in here and there that appeared to be moderated at the end of the day, they are believers in corporal punishment and other aspects of Sharia that are not compatible with modern day. What's the fourth country in Twitter activity? The United States. The USA. 404. And then next orders down from that, Egypt, Kuwait, Turkey, Palestinian area, 162, Lebanon, 141. United Kingdom and Tunisia, 125. Now, as I've told you before on this program, they've been targeting Tunisia because Tunisia's success as a democracy is its biggest threat. But those are the top countries. Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Iraq, and then all the other ones beginning with the United States. United States activity almost is the same as Iraq. Iraq 453, the United States 404. What does that tell you? One is access to media, but the other is the fact that the Saudis, through their funding of Western organizations, have created a milieu of ideas. If you wonder where Manchester is coming from, if you wonder where San Bernardino and others, this Twitter activity should tell you that it is not the internet or social media that's radicalizing. These individuals are radicalized already and they're simply using the social media as a tool to communicate. And the prevalence is pre-baked based upon the Sharia books and the interpretation of Islamic law and our scripture that was sent from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The Rubik's Cube of hell, of theocracy. So, the Arab Tyrant Manual is about complaining about these Twitter activities, not shutting it down, which they shouldn't, I don't believe, but then who do they put in prison? The Rafe Bedouis of the world for tweeting or hitting a like button on Facebook for a Christian organization or a Christian Facebook page. The Turks and the Qataris will put in prison 10 free thinkers before they even think of putting one of the ISIS supporters that I just listed for you, the frequency and the prevalency of. That's the problem. Is that the, if you look at the graph of Twitter users, look at the graph of who gets put in prison. Do you really think that the ratio of radicals to non-radicals mirrors the Twitter activity? No. They will. The Saudis will tell you themselves the reason they can't liberalize the speech in Saudi Arabia is because the moment they do it, 90% of it they claim is radical activity. Why is that? I said, well, isn't it because you imprison the moderates and the liberals before you imprison the militants? And they said, absolutely not, and they denied it. And the reality is, if you look at Amnesty and other Human Rights Watch and other organizations, lesions, lesions of free thinkers are put in prison and whipped and flogged and beaten and tortured and disappeared and beheaded before any militants are. And yes, some militants are, and the Saudis expose them, but I dare to tell you that I believe it's orders of magnitude 
less than the free thinkers because that would be the only solution to radical Islam. It's not coming from the Saudi jurists who tell them how to sanitize their beheadings, sanitize their floggings and misogyny. No. It's because moderate free thinkers, disruptors, are not given a voice. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards. Well, I hit the stop button just in time there because we had a... uh, we went to a break and all of a sudden all hell broke loose. We had two dogs run out of the house. We had kids dropping F-bombs. I mean, oh my gosh, that was that was kind of crazy. That was kind of crazy. <laughs> 40 Acres and a Fool. On demand. Download episodes at theblaze.com slash radio. SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. about always a lot of fronts in this battle for reform battle for modernity battle against islamism wahhabism salafism all the different forms of political islam and its movement to evangelize control of the muslim community across the planet create the foundations for their future caliphate and if i have one last breath left in me i want my legacy our legacy as muslims to be the defeat the end of all Islamic states to defeat the end of any concept of the caliphate because any honest Muslim would tell you you will never, never see the end of violent jihad until the Islamic state identity is dead. As long as it has any oxygen, they will then look upon loyalty to the state's identity citizenship to the state's identity of Islam as being incumbent and part and parcel of the jihad. That's what it has to be. Now, I'm going to come back to a topic I've talked to you about a few episodes back. We talked about female genital mutilation and about these horrific cases of these doctors that the FBI finally nabbed that were part of the Daudi Bora Shia sect, a a fringe sect of the Shia community that was committing these acts, but clearly for any, again, any honest Muslim, female genital mutilation is something that is seen across different sects of Islam. Most Western Muslims do not do it, but globally there are hundreds of millions of women that have been affected by this. And the racists in our community will call it an African procedure, which it is not. It is derived from, yes, tribalisms, yes, some pre-Islamic ideas, but the bottom line is that it is now reinforced by the Sharia interpretations of many misogynist clerics. In fact, in Northern Virginia, Al-Sayyid, the imam, was giving a sermon 
a talk in his mosque at Al-Dar Al-Hijra, the mosque of An-Awlaki, Anwar Al-Awlaki, the mosque. That this Imam and so many others that I believe have been connected to the radicalization of Muslims across the planet and especially in America. Nidal Hassan may have been there. Bottom line is, is that it is important to understand FGM is not something just sort of a fluke little fringe activity that is done to certain girls by militants. No. The Duri Boris Act actually in some things might be more modernist and reform in its approach to some things. And yet in its in its approach to FGM, it's horrifically misogynistic. And these doctors, now it's being revealed, did this to over a hundred girls. Now it's being revealed that even the mosque was paying them for it, even though they denied have anything to do with it. And as the FBI's case rolls out, we're seeing more and more details that just should horrifically show you how there is an underground network of folks that facilitate these types of procedures. And for every one FGM, there are hundreds of girls that are that are victims of honor abuse, honor violence, and other aspects to the misogynistic Islamist culture. But the new, the, even of all these facts that I just told you that are new in the case, one of the most bizarre turns this week is that the famed attorney and retired Harvard law professor who's made a name for himself for being the civil rights liberal attorney defender has now said that he will consult with that community to help them come up with a new procedure that is simply a pinprick. Now, the New York Times reported that he was going to consult for them and he said that was fake news and rather that he was simply trying to find a solution. Dershowitz again, as Breitbart News reports, Dershowitz again stated in the New York Times that they got the story wrong and he's not helping the defense charged with committing the federal crime of FGM in Michigan. He said, I'm consulting. The Times mischaracterized my role. I'm not representing any of the people who are charged. I'm just consulting with the group in an effort to try to create a worldwide alternative to FGM. If we can get everybody in the world today who practices FGM, this group does not, he said. Every group in the world who practices, if we can get them to substitute the symbolic pinprick, which is the equivalent, for example, of a 15-year-old kid having your ear pierced, which is legal, it causes just about the same amount of harm to have your ears pierced as to have a tiny prick on the labial hood that to me would be a great accomplishment. It would also help to resolve the conflict between religious freedom and the interests of the state. So that's my role in the case. He said they don't practice FGM. He said about the Dawat al-Hadiyya. Now, he later finished. My goal is to help them create a model all over the world for groups that do the practice to be able to comply with the law. 
He wants to get the U.S. government to agree that a sterilized benign pinprick would not violate the law. Now, Breitbart appropriately asked them, would this be a false flag in which they would then still do the FGM? And a lot of these girls who Dr. Nagarwala claimed was she was just doing a nicking operation, reports of the examination show deep scarring on these girls. He said, I'm not concerned about these groups, this group. They want to obey the law and have been trying to obey the law. This group never practiced clitoral cutting or anything of the kind, so I am very uncomfortable. I'm very comfortable representing the group and trying to get the law to change. And he goes on. He thinks it's a win-win. Now, I'm sorry, Mr. Dershowitz. I'll be writing a piece in response to this. Anyone who knows, first of all, what's the purpose of the procedure? The purpose of the procedure, a nick, let's say... Mr. Dershowitz, let's say that Nazism was, Nazism was a religion. And all the Nazi family wanted to do when their baby was born was ask the doctor to spray a little canister of some type of benign little spray on the, head of the, fore, on the forehead of the baby. And that spray would make them into an Aryan baby that would be the sign of them hating Jews. Would that be religious freedom to spray it even though it was benign? So the intent of the procedure matters too. So number one, the intent of that procedure is not simply like male circumcision in which they are performed for cleanliness or other aspects that are historically from the time of the Jews that are done. It's not done to men for desexualizing them that imam in northern virginia is now fired or he's still on administrative leave being paid actually but initially he put up a, a weak apology a month ago when he was cornered and his video was found because he had not only said that this is done in a righteous way to do the reduction of the clitoral hood but because they were because girls according to these Barbaric clerics, they believe these girls are born hypersexual. So the whole procedure is about desexualizing them. So if you ask these clerics why they want to do it, it's not just a little formality. It's because they want to desexualize them. So the intent matters. No attorney would ever tell you that intent doesn't matter. And intent matters. Number two, I don't know which physicians Dershowitz been consulting with, but... A little nick on the clitoral hood of the genitalia of a newborn girl is a microscopic procedure that is fraught with complications. It's not like an ear pierced. That's absurd. Number three, talk to the anti-FGM organizations like Sahiyo and others that have counseled lesions, counseled 
thousands upon thousands of victims, and they will tell you that once this procedure is done, the girl will become subjugated by her family, that she'll be told that she had it done, and she now is submissive to them. It's part of the submissive culture. It's part of the control of the bodily autonomy. So they are feeding into, by even doing a pinprick or even some type of formality, that procedure is part of the indoctrination that that girl belongs to the men of that family. So stop it and knock it off. And last, that procedure has no religious validity. Religious freedom is for, is for procedures that have validity and necessity. There is no version of Islam that is worth holding on to that defends the validity of that procedure. And for every million circumcisions done of men, how many complications in psychological, psychiatric, physical scarring, etc., do you find done because of that? Versus the, if for every thousand nicking procedures done, harms to the girl, to the family, to others because of that procedure. It's like 99% harm to one not. So I'm sorry. I will at every opportunity fight this. I'm very disappointed that Alan Dershowitz did such poor, poor research on this. Or he is completely, with the moral equivalency with what's done to young boys for male circumcision, there is no moral equivalency there. None. If you look at the imams that justify this, their justification is not based simply on a tradition. There's not even any evidence, by the way, in Islam that the Prophet had that done to his daughters. None whatsoever. It's all extremely weak, if not falsified hadith, which are sayings of the Prophet. I don't know any Muslims that I've ever talked to that say that there are any clerics worth anything that said that. But the bottom line is, is you're in denial if you do not believe that it's currently part of the strains of interpretation of Sharia across the planet. Otherwise, the numbers would not be in the hundreds of millions of girls that have been subjected to that alive today. So I ask you, send Alan Dershowitz a note, a letter. Tell him to knock it off with his apologetics and his, his self-righteous attempts to try to fix this problem globally. Yes, I know about it. There was a paper written in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Dershowitz claimed he was coming up with a solution. No, this was written in the Journal of Medical Ethics by two do-gooding professors who, who I put out a press release from the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and also presented at the AMA to condemn physicians that did this procedure. It is not simply a pinprick. It is female genital mutilation. And any attorney, physician, human being who thinks that it's okay for a newborn girl to have a procedure done to her genitals near the clitoris or anything needs to have their head examined and needs to go back and read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We'll continue to follow this story week to week. Thank you for being with me this week on Reform This, your faithful American patriot, your faithful ambassador for human rights. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. God bless.
Reaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.